we're going to continue um, our series uh, for the season of Easter, and we're going to read together John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. So this follows immediately on from, from, from the appearance of, of Jesus to Mary Magdalene uh, on, the, on Easter Sunday night. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed in them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Um, last week was Easter Sunday, and, and I have to be honest, I, I have a real problem with Easter. Not so much Easter itself, but with Easter eggs. Um, I love them. I'm telling you the truth here. If you gave me an Easter egg right now, I could munch it down in less than 30 seconds. Uh, and Lindsay, working at school, often gets given Easter eggs. And this year, she got given four eggs uh, from her class. And uh, I think she knows me too well because she decided to hide three of the eggs and only mention about one, which she gave to me. But based on other years, I suspect that there might be some more eggs in the house. So when she was out, I did a quick search, found the rest of the eggs, and quickly ate them. Um, I'll be honest, it was a bad moment, right? It was a bad moment for, for me personally, and it was a bad moment for our relationship. Um, and Easter eggs are a part of Easter I'm always glad to move on from. But for our other parts of Easter, we should be much, much slower to move on from. N.T. Wright says this, the message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that now we're invited to belong to it. Do you hear that? Easter is an invitation to belong to a new world, a new reality. It's so much more than a special day in the year when we remember something important that happened a long time ago. It's more like a pair of glasses. We put them on and through them, through Easter, we see everything differently. 
the world becomes a different place through the lens of Easter. Now, there are some people of which it is said that their presence in the room makes all the difference. Their presence in the room makes all the difference. And in our reading this morning, Jesus' presence in the room made the difference. Brooks Adams was the grandson of American President John Quincy Adams, and his father, Charles Adams, was American ambassador to England. Now, one of Brooks Adams' strongest memories from his childhood was a whole day he spent alone with his father, usually a very busy man, simply fishing and playing games. He remembered it as the best day of his childhood and one of the most important days of his whole life. And years later, after his dad had died, he went to write a biography of him, and he was eager to see in his research what his dad had written about that special day in his personal journal. So he looked up that date that was burned onto his memory, and this was the entry his dad had recorded. Spent the day fishing with my son, a day wasted. You see, Charles Adams, the father, didn't recognize in his journal the difference, his presence, the difference of him being there with his son had made but for us, the opposite is almost true. The risen Jesus, God incarnate, God risen from the dead, is with us always. That's his promise. But do we recognize and embrace the difference his presence can really make? Now, there are two similar but different appearances of Jesus in our reading this morning. And the first happened on Easter Sunday night with all the disciples except Thomas. Now, as a person, uh, if you know me, you'll know that I've never really been known for my athletic ability. I know you wouldn't guess that by looking at me, but I'm actually really awful at all sports, like every sport. And this isn't self-deprecation, right? I'm not looking to challenge you to a game or something later and hustle you. I'm genuinely really awful. And here's some evidence. A couple of years ago, I was taking Scripture Union, uh, and my old PE teacher was there, and I talked to him after. So I'm 30 at this stage, and I'm like, you probably don't remember me, but, and he interrupted me, and he says, no, I remember you. You were the worst pupil I ever had. Seriously, that were, those were the words that came out of his mouth. So naturally, at school, I was always picked last for a team, any team. But to tell you the truth, I was never too bothered about that because I knew I was rubbish. I knew where my strengths were, and I knew absolutely what my strengths weren't. I knew I was a liability to the team. That's why I was really shocked in fourth year when for some bizarre reason, I was chosen to run in the relay for my house year group in sports day. And I was terrified because I absolutely knew I was not the right person for that job. But hey, we didn't actually come last. We came third out of fourth and I didn't drop the baton. So it wasn't a complete disaster. But all the same, I still knew there was someone better than me for that job. And I wonder, 
I wonder if the disciples felt like me, inadequate, not up for the task, for must be someone better. When Jesus appeared to them and gave them responsibility to do the most important job in history, the job of carrying on the mission he had started. And as the scene opens, with the disciples gathered, uh, scared out of their minds that they were about to be arrested, we wouldn't hold out much hope that they're going to receive Jesus' command with much enthusiasm. But then Jesus appears, risen from the dead, fresh from the tomb. And the first word to come out of his mouth is peace. Peace be with you. Now, it wasn't that they were shocked by Jesus' sudden appearance and he's trying to calm them down. And peace be with you isn't, as some people suggest, just Jesus' way of saying hello. In fact, Jesus isn't just saying something. He's giving them something. He's giving them his peace, just as he had promised them at the Last Supper. And in some ways, peace sums up what Jesus is all about. Peace between us and God. Peace between heaven and earth. Peace in here in our very souls and peace out there in the world at large. But what I love most here is the humanity of Jesus. Because Jesus had every right to call out the disciples, to confront Peter about his betrayal, to call out the fact, the fact that of all the disciples, only John was there at the foot of the cross. Jesus could rightly say, I told you so, now bow down and worship me. But he doesn't. Instead, Jesus meets his disciples in their weakness at their point of need. He recognizes how they feel, what they've been through, and he overcomes all that and gives them his peace, the peace he enjoys with his heavenly father and has done from all eternity. And in that moment, their fear is replaced by joy. Their fear is replaced by joy. And I find this incredible because think about it. Their reason for being afraid was still there. Just as easily in that moment as it had been a few moments before, the Jewish leaders could have burst through the doors and arrested them. But instead, their fear is removed and they have joy. Why? Because with Jesus in the room, the risen Jesus, they have become different people and now they are able to see things differently. But peace isn't all Jesus gives them because he gives them a new purpose as well. He sends them out into the world to carry on his mission. And before they even have a chance to say that we're not up for this task, he gives them another gift. He breathes on them and tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. This is the only time in the Bible we are told of Jesus breathing on people. And it points us back to Genesis 2, right at the start of the Bible, when God creates the world and he forms Adam out of the dust of the earth, the first man, and he breathes his own life into his nostrils. Jesus is breathing his own life, the eternal life of God, 
his father into his disciples. In this moment, he is making them alive in a new way. As Paul tells us, having the Holy Spirit means that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is living inside every believer. So if you believe in Jesus this morning, the truth is, the truth of Scripture is that God's Holy Spirit is in you, the very life and power of God, whether you feel like it or not. Now, I had genuine reasons to doubt my sporting ability, right? A long track record of being awful. And you may think you have reasons to doubt your usefulness to God right now. You're saying to yourself, I'm not good enough. I'm not gifted enough. I haven't been a Christian long enough or I've been one too long. I'm an outsider. I've made too many mistakes. But whatever reasons you're listing right now, they aren't legitimate. Because as a believer, God's own Holy Spirit is in you, making you strong for the task. Paul says in Ephesians, that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. So God has appointed a whole itinerary of good work for you to do. And until we go home to be with him, that list will never be exhausted. There's always something we can do for the Lord. So this morning, first of all, I want to say that in the company of the resurrected Jesus, you have a purpose. Fear is replaced with peace and purpose when Jesus is present. Secondly, a week later, Jesus appears again. And this time Thomas is in the room. If you know any young people at all, you've probably heard of FOMO, right? F-O-M-O. And it stands for the fear of missing out. It's this idea that I don't want to miss whatever's about to happen. I always want to be where the action is. FOMO, the fear of missing out. We find out that Thomas had missed out on an epic scale because he wasn't in the room on Easter Sunday night. Now, we aren't told why. He, he, he could have been out getting the groceries, or it could be something else. Once, when Jesus decided to go to, to Bethany to raise Lazarus, Thomas said, not, not to Jesus, interestingly, but to the other disciples, he said, let us also go with him, that we may die. So we get a sense that Thomas was maybe a bit more negative, a bit more cautious than the rest of the crew. So maybe he's not there that first Sunday night because he's thinking, you know what? It's easier to get caught as part of a group than it is out on my own. But the truth is we don't know why he wasn't there, but we do know that he missed out. On the other hand, I think we can be really quick to judge Thomas simply for being a realist. Because Thomas knows full well from experience that death is final. He's seen crucifixions. They were a regular sight on hillsides outside villages and towns all through the Roman Empire. People don't get crucified, then show up alive and well a few days later. And Thomas stands in real contrast to John the disciple 
Because John alone, if the disciples believed that Jesus is risen without seeing his body, he saw the empty tomb and the grave clothes, and that was enough. But not for Thomas. And that encourages me, actually, because it shows that there are all sorts of disciples with all sorts of personalities and temperaments. We're all made, each of us, of different stuff, which is part of the beauty of church. We are each different. We're not clones of one another. And some of us believe in different ways than others. And that's part of the point of this chapter, to show us that people believe and come to belief in different ways. And when Jesus shows up a week later, he doesn't judge Thomas or call him out. Instead, he shows him the same kindness and understanding he showed to the rest of the group when he appeared to them on Easter Sunday night. In fact, he offers Thomas the very thing he said he needed to believe, to touch his wounds. But Thomas, in the end, doesn't have to touch anything because seeing Jesus was enough. And he cries out, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. So the disciple who doubted was the first to explicitly declare that Jesus was God. And there's got to be something in that, doesn't there? Stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting and believe. With these words of Jesus, I believe we're getting to the heart of John's gospel. I was part of a Zoom call over Easter with some young people, and the young person who isn't a Christian yet said, if I was there, if I had actually seen it all happen with my eyes, then I could believe. But would he? Would we? We live, we're told, in a secular age where doubt and skepticism are the norm. But the truth is, doubt is nothing new. There were many people, many, many people who saw Jesus' miracles and yet refused to believe. Even Thomas, who saw Lazarus raised from the dead, doubted that Jesus was really raised. And that's why Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Because Jesus knows that for many people, faith will be hard. And straight after Thomas's incredible statement of belief, John tells us really usefully the precise reason he wrote a gospel in the first place. This is what he says in verse 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Faith, belief in Jesus is the goal of John's gospel. It's written in the hope that those who read it will come to believe in Jesus because it's by believing in him that we receive eternal life. That's, that's how simple John's testimony is here. And John tells us the story of Thomas alongside the other reactions because he knows that even though he himself had no trouble believing, for a lot of people like Thomas, doubt is going to go hand in hand with faith. 
Philip Yancey says in his book, and thou, this. Doubt always coexists with faith, for in the presence of certainty, who would need faith at all? I'll read that again. Doubt always coexists with faith, for in the presence of certainty, who would need faith at all? So, so it's not a matter of, of having one and not having the other. It's about proportion, a strong voice and a weak voice, a dominant voice and a lesser voice. And doubt comes in all sorts of shape and sizes and for any number of reasons. It can be fleeting or it can be a lifelong struggle. First of all, there is God's very nature to reckon with. If you haven't noticed already, God is hidden, invisible. Interestingly, this is something the Bible actually celebrates. The true living God who met with Israel cannot be found, influenced, or controlled by humans as he stands apart from creation as its sovereign creator. I find it fascinating that the Romans called the Jewish people atheists, those without God, because their temple was empty. Whereas the Roman temples were full of statues and idols and all these representations of God, there was none of that in the Jewish temple. Because the Jewish people knew that the one true God they worshipped couldn't be represented in a statue. Because God is utterly free in his power, above and beyond the world he made. But I also think that's very often the crux of her doubt. It's the not seeing that's difficult. But I also think it's not so much about whether we can justify the existence of a being like God who is so huge and holy and, and, and different from, from us. The much more important question is how can I have and sustain a relationship with a God like that? And when life gets tough, things can get especially hard. Does a God like this care about me? Does he see me? Is he able to make a difference? Can he really understand what I'm going through? Now, the reason Jesus was flesh and bone and blood was part of the way God addressed this. He became one of us so that he could understand us in our weakness. But I also want to tell you that doubt is real, even with that. And if you struggle with doubt, but even the strongest Christians have had questions and doubts from day one. In 1527, Martin Luther, the great reformer, the man who wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, recorded that, for more than a week, I was close to the gates of death and hell. I trembled in all my members. Christ was wholly lost. He later reflected. The content of the depressions was always the same. The loss of faith, that God is good, and that he is good to me. Do you see the nature of that doubt? It wasn't so much he was doubting the possibility that there was a great big God, something or someone that made the universe. He doubted that God was personally good and capable of being good to him. And some of you maybe need to hear this morning, but it's okay to be honest about the reality of doubt as an aspect of the Christian life. And people of strong faith shouldn't put down people of weaker faith as somehow lesser 
because you don't know the struggles someone might be going through. On the other hand, people of weak faith shouldn't put down people who find believing easy because that kind of faith is a beautiful gift from God. But the real key here to overcoming doubt, to turning it into the quieter voice in the conversation, is to understand, I believe, the power and simplicity of true faith, the simplicity of true faith in Jesus. And I want to finish by saying that small but true faith is always more powerful than doubt. And I think there are two parts of the sort of faith or believing John is talking about here. The first thing that constitutes real faith is recognizing that we are in need of help. In some way, I think most of us know that our life isn't the way it's supposed to be. The Bible helps us to diagnose that gut feeling, to get to the root of the problem, that our lives, that in fact the whole creation is suffering because of sin. We are broken people in a very broken world. The next thing involves trusting that Jesus really is the Son of God who loves us and died and rose again to save us and heal us. True faith, saving faith, happens when we put those two things together. Our need and Jesus' ability to meet that need. It's about personally trusting Jesus and no one or nothing else to be our saviour. You know, I think a lot of the time we recognize our need, that something desperately needs to change in our lives, but we're guilty of putting our trust in the wrong things, in the wrong people to make the difference. We enter into bad relationships. We make bad choices. We do unhealthy things and maybe even destructive things. And instead of being healed, we get more hurt. We maybe even hurt other people in the process. Or we exhaust ourselves trying to be our own or someone else's personal savior. On the other hand, some people might believe there is a God, might believe that Jesus is the son of God, but they don't admit their need. They say, God's maybe real, but I don't need him. But when all this comes together, believing that we do genuinely need help, we're in need of being rescued, believing that Jesus really is who he claims to be and that he alone is able to save us. And when we place our trust in him for our rescue, John is so clear. In fact, the whole of scripture is so clear that at that very moment, we are rescued by God and we receive eternal life. And the eternal life we're talking about here, it isn't just life in heaven after we die. Eternal life refers to the quality of life as well as the length of it. We start receiving eternal life the moment we believe. God starts from that very instant to rewrite our stories, to change the whole trajectory of our journeys. He gives us focus and purpose and we start to become the people we know deep down we were always meant to be. We are new creations, part of God's wonderful new creation. Now this process isn't always easy, but it is always better. But here's the big point. From that moment on, on, by that faith we are saved. Yet throughout our Christian journey, despite the certainty of our destination, okay, the guarantee, we will still be surrounded throughout our journey 
by sin, death, and evil. And disappointment is everywhere. In fact, earlier in the gospel, Jesus prays for us, his followers, in this way. He says, My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. It's Jesus' will that we stay in this broken world so that we can be his witnesses and tell and show others the victory he has won. Yet surrounded by all that's still wrong with this old creation, at times it's natural we'll feel low. At times the hurt and traumas we carry will play out in sometimes unexpected ways, and at times our relationship with God will get rocky, like any real and living relationship. And some of us, through no fault of our own, are programmed to ask all the hard and difficult questions, just like Thomas was. But here's the thing. God's faithfulness is always bigger than our doubts. God's faithfulness is always bigger than our doubts. Our doubting his good intentions has no power to lessen his love. Your doubts can't change God. And look at how Jesus dealt with Thomas. In fact, with all the disciples, instead of a rightful rebuke, he shows gentleness, understanding, and kindness. He knew who they were. Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas for his doubting. Now, I don't know. Maybe there was something significant in Thomas' life that led him to be wary, skeptical, not to hope for too much. Maybe he'd been burned in the past. Maybe he's thinking, it's okay, it's great that you guys are a bit happier believing that Jesus rose from the dead, but I need so much more before I give my life to this. I need to touch the wounds, to know this isn't some magic trick. I don't want to get duped. I don't want to get hurt again. But the truth is, I don't know Thomas' circumstances, but I do know that Jesus did, and I know how Jesus treated him. Jesus got him. He understood him inside and out, and he was gracious and kind to him. And he gets you and me. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he doesn't treat us according to the quality or consistency of our faith. He treats us according to the riches of the love he has for us. He has already demonstrated on the cross that he loves us. And that's how he sees us. And that's how he treats us. And that simple faith, that simple trusting reliance in Jesus and his love, okay, that is always more powerful than whatever doubts enter into your life for whatever reason. Richard Sibbs was a Puritan minister in the 1600s, and he, and he wrote a little book called The Bruised Reed, reflecting on a verse Jesus quotes in Matthew from Isaiah 42, which says, a bruised reed he shall not break. The picture Sibbs gets is like of a reed growing in a, a, a bed of water that's kind of broken, but Jesus doesn't break for reed in half, okay? He, he doesn't break for reed. And here's a quote from that little book. Are you bruised? Are you bruised this morning? Are you hurt in some way? Are you angry at God? Are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him. Go to Christ, although trembling. 
go boldly to God in our flesh. He is flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone for this reason that we might go boldly to him. Never fear to go to God. Go boldly to God this morning. Never fear to go to him. Um, I have conversations with people who are hardened atheists. Um, sometimes, genuinely, it's for loads of scientific reasons that they're able to throw at me. Sometimes, they, my sense is they don't really understand the gospel. Sometimes, actually, as the conversation goes on, I realize that they've just been hurt a lot, and they've been disappointed, and they've been let down, and they're and they're angry at God, and they've begun, like Martin Luther did, to doubt the possibility of God's being good to them. But Jesus being present in the room reminds us that God is always good to us. He is always good to us. He is always our loving, caring Father. And he holds us, and he keeps us, even in our brokenness and weakness. I said at the start that Easter changes everything. And it changes everything for the whole world, okay? This world is a different place because of Easter. Even if we don't see it, God's new creation is breaking into this old world right now. All around the world, even in this moment, God's kingdom is coming, okay? But it changes stuff for us personally too because it means we can go to God boldly with confidence, trusting in his love. And it means we can be changed by God it means that Jesus is alive, that he is with us right now through his Holy Spirit. And his presence makes a difference. His presence makes a difference. He is able to turn our deep-seated fears into peace and purpose. He is able to overcome our doubts simply by being with us as the resurrected one. Easter means we can go to God this morning weak and full of doubts though we may be, but assured of his great love for us. And we're going to worship as we finish, reminding ourselves of God's goodness. But just as the band comes, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray that we would, would have that boldness this morning to come to God, to go to God wherever we're at. Maybe, maybe you've never given your life to the Lord Jesus. Uh, you've never placed your trust in him, but it's starting to come alive this morning. You're like, you know what? I, I'm a doubting person, but I think I could trust Jesus. I, I, actually, I can trust him in this moment without having all those other hurts healed and all those questions answered. I can trust him right now. Or maybe you're thinking, I haven't done anything for God in such a long time, but you know what? I'm going to go to him this morning and ask for his Holy Spirit to make me strong. As we pray, let's go to God and let's be bold with him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your wonderful love shown to us in Jesus. I thank you that you understood how difficult it is for us to relate to you and your power and your majesty. So, so you became lowly. You entered into this world as, as a human being so that we could understand you and know you and trust you more. And I thank you that then Jesus breathed his Holy Spirit into the church so that we could be your arms and feet to a broken world. 
And I pray this morning that you would give us the boldness to go to you, that you would heal old wounds, that you would overcome fear with peace and purpose, that you would overcome doubt with hope. Um, So be with us this morning, we ask, in a really powerful and real way as we carry on through this week. In Jesus' name, amen.